This is the word of the Lord. Now Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is in Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for her and to weep for her. Then Abraham rose from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my Lord. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our graves. None of us will refuse you his grave for your burying your dead. So Abraham rose and bowed to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish for me to bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and approach Ephron, the son of Zoar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, which is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence for a burial site. Now Ephron was sitting among the sons of Heth, and Ephron, the Hittite, answered Abraham in the hearing of the sons of Heth, even all even of all who went in at the gate of the city, saying, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you this field and give you the cave that is in it. In the presence of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. And Abraham bowed before the people of the land. He spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will only please listen to me, I will give you the price of the field. Accept it from me, and I will bury, and I may bury, that I may bury my dead. Then Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between me and you? So bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth. 400 shekels of silver. Commercial standard. So Ephron's field, which is in Machpelah, which faced Mamre, the field, and the cave which is in it, and all the trees which were in the field that were within all the confines of the border were deeded over to Abraham for a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, facing Mamre, that is in Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded over to Abraham, for a burial site by the sons of Heth. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we come to you now and ask that you would give to us ears to hear, eyes to see, and minds to understand that which the Spirit of God is saying to the church today. We pray that you would help us along, Lord. Help us to be attentive to your word. As Pastor Isaiah prayed this morning, let all distractions be removed and let our minds, hearts, and eyes be fixed on Christ and his word insofar as it is accurately taught this morning. I decrease that you may increase, be glorified in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Forgive me for not greeting you this morning. I I greet you and say good morning to you. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and I welcome you on this Lord's Day as we return now 
after a six-month hiatus, a six-month break, to our study in the book of Genesis. And it feels good just getting back into Genesis for whatever reason. We come to this 23rd chapter this morning, and as we approach the immediate scriptures, we are immediately confronted with the reality of death. Specifically, we are confronted with the death of the matriarch of Israel, Sarah. The last time that we heard anything about Sarah was in the 21st chapter of the book of Genesis. In that chapter, take note of this, Sarah was 90 years old in the 21st chapter, the last time that we heard of her. In that chapter, she had given birth to Isaac, the promised child, in the appointed time of God. Uh, in that chapter, we also learned that Sarah has a, a type of confrontation uh, with Hagar which resulted in Ishmael and Hagar being sent away from the house of Abraham. You may remember this. After, or in our reading, that was only two chapters ago. Where we are today, in the 23rd chapter, 37 years have now passed. So, for us, it was just two chapters ago. Or, but in their lives, it was 37 years later. The 27th or 23rd chapter begins by telling us that Sarah was 127 years old when she passed on. Interestingly, Sarah is the only woman in the entire Bible whose age is given when she dies. Search the scriptures. There's only one woman who the Bible tells us how old she was when she dies, and it is Sarah, 127 years old. As a matter of fact, up until this time, we have just been given notes when someone passes along. Uh, this person passed, or this person died. He lived and then he died. But here in the 23rd chapter, we are given an entire chapter that is devoted to the fact, at least surrounding the fact, that Sarah has died. Let me be clear about this, though. The chapter is not about Sarah's death. It's a chapter that is surrounding the idea, the, the, the reality that Sarah has died, but it is not about the death of Sarah. Sarah's death is a reality, but not the point, if I could say it that way. This is important because we might read this chapter and miss the big picture if we're not keeping this point that I'm about to make in the front of our minds when we're reading not just this chapter, but any chapter, any verse, any book of the Bible, we must keep this in mind. All that has been written has been written so that we might see the redemptive plan of God progressively pointing forward and ultimately being fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, therefore, Christ is the scope of Scripture. Uh, you know what a scope is. It is that, that uh, those of you who know anything about guns, you might understand. It is that focus. It is that thing through which you look into to find a target. The target for which scripture is pointing to us toward is Christ. This is important because when, for example, when we're reading passages like last week, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is perfected in weakness. We might have missed the entire context of why Paul's saying what he's saying. Well, let us not make that mistake. Uh, we might miss the point of why Paul is saying what he is saying because we might be saying, what does that have to do with me? And the answer to what does that have to do with me is always, well, initially nothing. 
primarily nothing. Secondarily, maybe thirdly, something, but primarily it's always about Christ. If you're going into the scriptures and always saying, where, where am I? <laughs> where am I in this, this story? Well, you're getting the, the, uh, the cattle before, or how do you say it? The horse before the carriage. Yeah, you're doing that. Don't do that. It's Christ first. It's always Christ first. So our challenge this morning is to find in this chapter that we've just read together, where's Christ? What does this have to do with Christ? How does this point us forward somehow to Christ? Well, 37 years have passed. Think about that. She was 90 in chapter 21, and then now in chapter 23, she's all of a sudden 127 years old, and she's dead. Now, let, let me ask you this. Why doesn't the Bible say anything about those 37 years that have passed? That's a long time. 37 years have passed in the life of Sarah, and not one mention of what's taken place except for the fact that she had a conflict here. She gave birth to the promised child, and now she's dead. Why does the Bible do that? Because the Bible and the chapter itself, it's about Christ and not about Sarah. You see that? We always ask questions. Well, what about Jesus? What was he doing when he was six years old? What was he doing when he was uh, seven and then eight? And then why do we only have this picture of Christ when he's 12? Because the Bible is doing something intentional. The Bible is not giving us detailed accounts of every single life that we see in the Bible. Why? Because it's not so that we could look at them, it's so that we can somehow see Christ. As you're reading every chapter, as you're reading every verse, as you're reading every book, Christ is the scope of Scripture. So that which the Bible tells us, is only in, is only, it is only telling us that we might see clearer the Lord Jesus Christ. Not so that we can know where the dinosaurs come from, doesn't matter. Not so that we could know uh, what was Sarah's favorite food. It doesn't matter. That has nothing to do with God's plan of redemption. And that is why the scriptures have been written. So then, how are we going to see Christ in this chapter? And it's meant to be taken as a whole. That's why we're reading the whole chapter. Let's try this morning with three points and with the help of God's spirit. Number one, let's discuss first or consider Abraham's mourning. Abraham's morning. And I am going to read uh, this verse at least to you. And I know that we've read it already. Now Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is in Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Again, brothers and sisters, when we enter this chapter... We are immediately confronted with the reality and the painful reality of death. We can all acknowledge that death is not a pleasant subject. Most of us, if we are honest, we do our best to avoid the reality of death. But we must understand that no matter what we do, no matter how well we live, how healthy we are, how much we exercise... Death will eventually come to each and every one of our lives. Unless Christ returns, of course. And he will. But unless that takes place in our lifetime, then we will experience death. 
It is interesting. One moment we see Sarah giving birth to her promised son. And the next moment we know she's dead. And there is a funeral service in her memory. Now, for us, it seems like, like that. What do you mean? She was giving birth, and all of a sudden, she's dead? Well, 37 years have passed, but it really is like that, isn't it? Isn't it, isn't it really like that in our lives? We're here today, enjoying the, the normal joys of life, and then we're gone. It seems like, if, if you're like me, it seems like yesterday that we were children playing with our friends and our cousins at school or at home and, and going to family events and, and now all of a sudden we're adults with children of our own who seem to be growing faster than we can stand. We know of those who were with us just yesterday. And it seems like just yesterday we were enjoying their presence and now they're gone. And we are not too far behind. Soon death will come to all of our lives. And I know that there is silence now. And I'm not trying to turn this sermon into a downer of a sermon. But there's a reason why you're quiet. Because death is disgusting, isn't it? Because death is difficult, isn't it? I have known death more times in my life than I can I would like to count and, and more times in my life than I would like to know. But there's something about all of us that knows that death is somehow unnatural. There's something in all of us that, that knows that somehow death is, is not right. We all come to accept the reality of it, though, don't we? We kind of numb ourselves to, well, that's just the way it is. But we know it's not right. It's a hard pill to swallow. Even unbelievers... Uh, for example, when I'm in the marketplace and I'm working, some of the customers that we have, they know my father. And they will say, well, well, how old was he? And I will say he, he was 60. And they say, oh, he was so young. And they're unbelievers. How tragic it is, they say. I, it's, just too, it's just too bad. Why do they know as unbelievers that, that there's something unnatural about what happened? Because God did not create us that we might die. God did not create us from his hands so that we might just die. It's unnatural. It is. Death is the result of man's sin and rebellion. That's why it's unnatural to all of us. That's why it, it painfully strikes every single one of us when it happens. Because we were not created to die. Death is the result of man's rebellion against God. God warned Adam in Genesis 2.17, In the day that you eat of it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. We know that Adam did eat of that forbidden tree. And the result is that death has now become the harsh reality of all, every human experience. The Apostle Paul called death the last great enemy. And here we are given a picture of a man who has been confronted with the death of his wife. Would you notice, brothers and sisters, that Abraham and Sarah, as important as they were to the promises of God, they were not exempt from the curse of sin that has come upon every single human being because of Adam's sin. Sarah lived a long life, didn't she? 
Sarah lived to be 127 years old. I wonder, how long, how old would you like to be? You ever ask your, your, your loved one, how old would you like to be? My son and I were asking this question, and my son said, I'd like to be 4,500 years old. That's impressive. We should remember that in the world that was, before the flood, men and women, they lived a lot longer than 127 years. As a matter of fact, we say, wow, Sarah, 127 years old. She lived a long life. But by comparison to those who lived before the flood, they would say about her, ooh, she died young. What happened? <laughs> Over the course of time, the limit of man's life, God has, has limited it to be around 120 years. Now, we, we know people who live up to 100, maybe. And we are surprised and shocked by their lives. But before the flood, men and, live, men and women lived to be a, a lot longer, or lived to... Uh, lived a lot longer than after the flood. When God first made us, he created us to live. Not 900 years or 969 years, the oldest man in the Bible, Methuselah, or 127 years, the age of Sarah when she dies, but he created us to live forever. Throughout the book of Genesis, we are reminded again and again that the wages of sin is death. And Sarah is significant in the plan of God. In the plan of God's redemption, but she still dies. Dear ones, you and I, we ought to live our lives being mindful of our own mortality. We should think about it from time to time. We, we should not dwell upon it and not, not think about it, but we should be thinking about the fact that we will one day pass from this life. We should not neglect the reality of our own mortality. We are told that Sarah was 127 years old when she died. And, and, and think about this, just for the sake of example. Let's assume that Abraham married Sarah when we were introduced to them. When we were introduced to Abraham and Sarah, Sarah was 65, Abraham was 75. If we assume that they were married when we were first introduced to them, then that means that they have been married for 62 years. And now here is Abraham kneeling at the bedside of his deceased beloved wife, the wife whom he has been married to for maybe 62 years. But I think if we assumed further than that, and I think it would be a correct assumption, that Abraham and, and Sarah were already married when we were introduced to them. It could be that they, were, they had already been married for at least 40 years. Which means that it is possible that Abraham is now kneeling at the bed of his beloved wife, the wife whom he has been married to for at least 100 years. I cannot imagine. I've been married to my wife now joyfully for seven years. 100 years, possibly. I can imagine. And here he is, the man of faith, mourning the death of his wife. The Bible says in verse 2, he went in to mourn for her and to, and to weep for her. Oh, and you, if you and I could imagine in our mind's eye the, the man of faith coming, he's 137, coming and kneeling at the side of his faithful wife. 
weeping over her. She was there through it all, wasn't she? When Abraham was called by God while he was living in Ur of the Chaldeans, which is Mesopotamia, to leave his country, to leave his kindred, he tells Sarah, I've heard the call of God. I must go. And she goes with him. When Sarah, Abraham made a fool of himself in Egypt, lying about his wife, saying, she's, she's my sister. Sarah remained faithful to him. When Abraham won the great victory over powerful nations, Sarah was right there by his side. When Abraham failed his wife in uniting himself to Hagar, producing Ishmael, Sarah continued to love him. And when God revealed to her his promises of redemption, she held tightly to those promises right alongside of her husband, Abraham. Through victories, Sarah was there. Through defeat, Sarah was there. In trial and triumph, Sarah and Abraham, Abraham and Sarah, they had been an inseparable team. But now they have been separated by the curse of death. Brothers and sisters, there are unique relationships that we experience in life, isn't there? There are those relationships that we have between our parents, if you have a good one. There are those relationships that we have between siblings that are good ones, if you have those. There are relationships that we develop with those who are not our siblings, but might as well be, because we love them like brothers and sisters. But I say to you, out of all of those relationships, there is no relationship that is more unique than the relationship between a husband and and his wife. The scriptures declare that two, they become one. And friends, when that is lived out biblically, it is the most fulfilling relationship. There is Abraham mourning over the death of his wife, weeping over her. And dear married people, I say to you, cherish your spouse. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect, submit to your husbands. Show them the Christ-like kind of love and show him the church-like submission and obedience and reverence. But would you notice this? It is right to mourn in death. Let me hear how I'm saying this. It's not all right. It is right. If I just say, it's okay, it's all right, then I'm essentially saying, mourn if you have to. But to say that it is right is to say that Scripture allows it. Scripture warrants mourning and death. As Christians, we are sometimes not expected to show any emotion. When someone dies, and if we do show any kind of emotion, it's almost as if we are displaying that we lack faith in Christ or lack faith in the resurrection, that we have no faith. Let us not make that mistake. And dear ones, it is right to weep and to mourn at the loss of a loved one. Abraham wept over Sarah. The Lord Jesus Christ wept over Lazarus, so much so 
that those who were standing by said, see how much he loved him. Would you notice, brothers and sisters, that Abraham and Sarah, as important as they were in the promises of God and the plan of redemption, they were not exempt from the curse of sin that has come upon all men. And Abraham felt the sting of that curse, which is why he wept. This is not right. It's right to weep for the mourning of a loved one or to mourn over the, the loss of a loved one. But it is also right, listen, it's also right to stop mourning. You hear that? It's not all right. It is right to stop mourning. How do we know this? Because the Bible says that Abraham rose. Abraham did not stay on his knees mourning and weeping before his deceased wife. But rather, Abraham rose. He carried on. The Bible says he rose from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth. Brothers and sisters, there must be a time of mourning, but there also must be a time where that mourning ends. There must be a time that we rise and look forward to what lies ahead of us. Now, there can be times when we occasionally weep because we miss them. My brother... He sent me a video the other day, uh, a, a video that I've been looking for for a very long time of uh, my father when he was on MSNBC. They did a small piece on him when he was in San Quentin prison. And I received the link and I clicked on it and I could not help myself. Because if you've ever seen that video, uh, my father's singing in that video. And he's singing songs that I've heard, but I've not heard, been able to hear him sing those songs like I did for at least 30 years of my aware Christian life, or at least, not aware Christian life, aware life, and then at least 20 years of my Christian life. So I've known those songs. I've sung them in my head, but then I heard him sing them. It was late at night. I couldn't help myself, and I began to weep. My wife, thankfully, was there. I said, I miss him. But I didn't stay in the bed crying that night. There was a time when, not that we forget our loved ones, but as a believer, we rejoice that we will once again see them, that we will again be united to them in a way that we, we could have never been united to them in this life. When we are united to our believing loved ones in glory, our relationships will be perfect. There will be no sin in that relationship. There will be no disputes in that relationship. It will be a pure relationship, one absent of sin and in the presence and glory of God. Therefore, it is right to mourn our dead. But we must not mourn like those who have no hope, the scriptures say. 1 Thessalonians 4.13. We must mourn, yes, but don't mourn like those who have no hope. I could uh, close that video and move on with my life because the hope that I have in Christ. It is not a warning against grief. It's a warning against grieving like those who have no hope. Our faith in God. And our faith in Christ whom God has sent. It should regulate our mourning. When a follower of Christ mourns. He should in due time lift up his eyes from the earth and lift them up to heaven above. From the grave to Christ who is risen, 
to Christ where his hope is found. When we mourn, we should not isolate ourselves either. Sometimes we, we isolate ourselves and we don't want anybody to be involved in our mourning, in our pain. But that's not what the scriptures command, is it? The scriptures command that we should mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. And what better place, what better context to rejoice and what better context to mourn than the church? Why? Because we are those who share your hope. If you're going to mourn, mourn with those who have the same hope as you. Now, we can mourn with those who love them in the way that we love them. But if they're unbelievers, they don't have the same hope that you and I have. Therefore, their mourning is a worldly kind of mourning. It is a mourning that has no hope. Yours is a heavenly kind of mourning. One that says, I will see them again. Or like David who says, uh, he cannot come to me after losing his son, and I cannot go to him, but I will see him again one day. That should be our hope. Our hope is in the fact that because Christ has been raised, then we and our loved ones who trust in Christ, they also, they shall be raised. So we mourn in faith with our hope firmly in God. And when the time comes and save the return of Christ, it will come. Let us mourn for the glory of God. Let us mourn to the glory of God who gives us hope beyond the grave. It is in Christ who has defeated the grave. Amen. Brothers and sisters, this may not be so clear, but this death of Sarah was once again another test of Abraham's faith. We've just left the chapter in chapter 22 where Abraham's faith was tested. You remember this? Where God requires Abraham, give to me your firstborn or your son, your, your only son, the one whom you love, and sacrifice him before me on the mountain of which I will show you. We know that that was a great test of faith. And now Abraham once again is being tested by God through the death of Sarah. Now we may say, how is this a, a test of Abraham's faith? Because of what Abraham has said. We're going to get to this, I think, in our third point. But listen to this. Then Abraham rose from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Now, how is this an act of faith? Let's go to our second point. Abraham, the sojourner. He said, I am a stranger or an alien and a sojourner among you. The Hittites were the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. They were generally called uh, Hittites, but they were inhabitants of the land of Canaan. Notice that Abraham begoes, goes before them when Sarah dies. And what does he ask them for? He asks them for a place to bury his beloved wife. But what does he say about himself in the presence of these Canaanites? He says that he is a wanderer. That he is a sojourner. That he is an alien. Now, Abraham was very wealthy, but one thing that Abraham did not have was land. 
of course, the land that had been promised to him, or this land had been promised to him, but at this point in the story, Abraham does not even own so much as a plot or even a cave to bury his beloved wife. This rich man has not one place to bury his dead. Now, this is significant when we consider the promises of God made to Abraham concerning the land. Remember that God promised Abraham that he would give him many descendants. And by this time, what did Abraham receive? He's received the birth of one son, Isaac. He did not see full and final reality of that promise, but he saw something. It was as if the seed is the promise, and Abraham has not yet seen the seed grow into a wonderful oak tree. He's only seen the sprout. Or he's only seen it crack open, and, and just that little sprout has, has begun to come out. God has also promised a land. He's promised him the land of Canaan. And Abraham, at this point, owns no land. He says of himself, I'm a sojourner. I'm a stranger. The fact of his wandering would have an impact uh, would have an impact on his descendants physically and spiritually. Over the course of time, we will see in the book of Genesis that he is a man of faith, yes, but he is a man of faith who has no home. He's a wanderer. But think of this. When Abraham's wife Sarah died, Abraham could have said, there's no place to bury her here. I don't own any land. What could his other option have been? Maybe, hopefully that makes sense. Sarah dies, and there's no place to bury her. What could Abraham have said? Well, think about this. Where is he from? Is he from Canaan? No. He's, a, he's an alien there. He's a wanderer there. He's a sojourner. And so he could have said easily, let's go back home. Where is he from? Ur of the Chaldeans, Mesopotamia. Abraham could have easily said, Sarah is dead. Let me go find a, a family member that I know uh, who maybe had a piece of land, who maybe had a cave, and I could go and bury her there, then come back to Canaan. But he doesn't do that. Instead, Abraham takes a step of faith, a giant step of faith, and he is asking for land. He is saying to the owners of the land, let me have a piece of your land, or let, at least let me buy a piece of your land. But he refers to himself as a wanderer in that land. Brothers and sisters, Abraham is a singular example of every single believer. There is a direct line between Abraham and every single believer. Therefore, if we belong to Christ, we are the seed of Abraham, says Paul. What does this mean? This means that in every believer, there is a, a family likeness that is within Abraham that should also be found in every single one of you who profess and claim Christ as your Savior. Why do you think the Bible goes to such great detail to describe the acts of faith and even the acts of failure in the life of Abraham? 
It is because what we see in Abraham is often found in every single one of us as believers. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 9, By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Abraham was there in the land of Canaan. He had a certain standing among the people. They called him a prince among them. But even still, he was an alien there. Even still, he was a stranger to that country. Listen to this. And so it should be with every single believer in Christ. Every true believer living in this world is a resident alien. If you are Christ, then the marks of a true pilgrim will be upon your life. In a sense, it is the one thing that distinguishes you from every other person on this earth. In a sense, it is the one thing that distinguishes you, the child of God, from every single person in this world. That this world is not your home. That you, like Abraham are looking unto a city whose builder and designer is God. Hebrews 11.9 tells us that Abraham lived in a tent. Imagine. Anybody, any, any of you enjoy camping in tents? Any of you enjoy? Now, I don't know what the, the conditions were like and if they were able to pack uh, beds onto the floor with mini blankets or whatever. I don't know how soft those tents were or how comfortable they were. But would you like to live in a tent every single day? Some of you don't even like living in the home that you're living in every single day, rather much less a tent. The tent was not a symbol of his poverty, though, because Abraham was a wealthy man. The tent was a symbol of his pilgrimage. It was a continuous day after day statement that this is not my home. That I am heading somewhere else. That I am oh, in a foreign country. And this is not my home. But there was a world to which he was moving. The world was a world to which he was going. He, he wasn't looking back to the country that he was from. He was looking forward to the country that God had promised him. So when we say uh, Abraham was faced with a great test of his faith... What is the great test? It is to acknowledge the fact that I don't have a home back there anymore. That I've been called from it. It no longer belongs to me. It no longer lay, lays any claim on me. It's no longer my home. But this is also no longer my home either. Or, but this is not my home either. Where I presently am is not my home. But where I am going... That is where my home lies. And the same could be said of you who trust in faith in Christ Jesus. Can you look back at who you were and say about who you were, I am no longer that person. And I am no longer bound by who that world says I was. But can you also look at yourself here today and say, and even this world today, even though I am saved, and even though I am living in this world, 
in a right mind, this world too is not my home, but rather there is a place that I am going to, that Christ has prepared for me, that that place is my home. There must have been a, a temptation there from Abraham, wasn't there? A, 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 a temptation to go back. Where will I lay her body? Where will she be buried? We won't go back. There is no going back. He's forsaken that place. He's been called out of that place. How could he return? After all that God has said, after all that he has seen God do, no, the song of this man, this pilgrim was, this world is not my home. I am just passing through. But do you live that way? He was going somewhere. Where are you going? The, the, the problem with the majority of the people of this world is that they are going nowhere fast. And the problem with some so-called believers is that they are also headed in that same direction. Where are you going? For the true believer, there is always a, there is always a far away look in their eyes. For the believer, there is always a distant stare in their eyes. They are not focused on this world. Their eyes are not focused on what they can see here. But there is something about their lives that's, that you can tell and you can see in them that they are looking onward. They are looking upward. There is a distant stare about them. Is that true for you? Are you looking beyond this world? Or are you saying, I've got to get married because if I don't get married, I'm never going to get satisfied. Or you're saying, I've got to have kids because if I don't get kids, I'm never going to be satisfied. I've got to buy a house. I've got to buy a plot of land. If I do, if I don't, then I'm never going to be satisfied. Where are your eyes this morning? Are those good things? Yes, they are. Are they sinful things? No, they're not. But should they consume all of your energy, all of your time, and all of your efforts? No, they should not. Why? Because they are all but passing. Do you know that the land that you might own today will be owned by someone else tomorrow? Do you know that the cars that you are saving, they will be driven by someone else whom you would never let drive them in your lifetime? It is passing. And Abraham had an awareness that this land was not his home. That even though he was in the land promised to him, he did not see Canaan as his final destination. Home is somewhere else. Home is somewhere else. No matter where you go in this world, home will always be some. I'm from Fairfax. I always say I'm Fairfax, California. I'm Bakersfield, California. But my neighborhood is Fairfax. No, it's not my home. My home is somewhere else. I can be anywhere in this world and it won't matter because this world is not my home. I wonder if you know something about the homelessness of the true believer. I heard a minister say that over this past week, and I thought, what a powerful phrase. The homelessness of the true believer. We see homeless people all the time. You should have something in common with them. That you have no home. Yes, you live in a house, but it's temporary. You won't stay there for the rest of your life. Your home is truly with God. And if you are belonging to Christ, you are just passing through. You will know a pilgrim by where their eyes are. Hebrews 11.10 says that Abraham was looking forward. 
there was something beyond that was not yet, but it was being prepared for him. His eyes were set on that which was ahead of him. Now, where are your eyes this morning? Temporal things? Or are you obeying the scriptures that says, let us fix our eyes on Christ and run the race? If you live for the riches of this world, you will be living an impoverished life. But if you live for Christ, you are the most wealthy among men. Let's go to our final point and, and really discuss this uh, test of Abraham's faith. Finally, Abraham's land. Abraham's land. Now, I'd like for us to, to pull out our scriptures again and, and to notice something that's happening here. Abraham is an alien. Speaking to these people, though, to the sons of Heth, what is he asking for? For land. So he's saying, I'm a sojourner. He's saying, I'm an alien. I'm a stranger here. But yet, at the same time, he wants to buy a piece of land. This was a test. The burial and, and Abraham's desire to, to get a grave, it was an expression of Abraham's hope. Abraham had a tangible hope. Abraham was going to bury, wanted to bury Sarah in a land that God had promised him. Why? Not, not in Ur. Why? Why this land? Because what God promised to Abraham could not be conquered by death. God had promised Abraham, this will be your land. So as a statement of faith, Abraham says, I will buy a piece of this land to bury my wife there. Now, what's important about that? Because grave sites are also memorial sites. That means that family will often travel back and remember that passed on person. Some of you may have passed on or loved ones who have passed on and you know where their grave sites are and you from time to time go there and pay your respects to them or remember them. Abraham was setting up a place that his family could come and return to to remember the matriarch of the people of Israel, Sarah. Now imagine, God has promised that Abraham would have many descendants, as numerous as the stars in the sky. And if you can imagine these, uh, these, this great multitude of people coming and memorializing or remembering the matriarch, how many people would be filling a land to remember a deceased person. If Abraham was to have descendants as numerous as the stars, then can you imagine the multitude that would come and visit this site where Sarah is buried? But it won't just be the place where Sarah is buried. Abraham is, is, is seeking a place where he too will one day be buried. He is seeking a place, a cave, where not only he and his wife will be buried, but also his children and his children thereafter. He is making a strategic move, but it is a move of faith. I wonder if you're understanding this. Abraham believed that this land had been given to him and to his descendants. He would therefore bury his dead there as a symbol that this land will one day be our home. It was an act of faith. 
Abraham. He did not hope in the land. He hoped in God. Abraham's faith was not merely in the, the fact that the promise had been given to him about this land, but it was, it was the fact that God had promised something beyond this land. We don't have a land. We have a greater hope than land. Our hope is that our bodies will, will not lay dead, but that our bodies will be raised one day. And so there's this kind of dance that goes on in, in negotiation between Abraham and Ephron, okay? Let's take a look at it. I want you to see this. Verse 6. So Abraham is saying, hey, I need a piece of land. Verse 6. Hear us, my Lord, the sons of Heth, they are responding. Now, you need to picture this as the sons of Seth, they are there, or Heth, sorry. The sons of Heth, they are there, but it seems to be a large number of people. So keep that in your mind's eye. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest grave for burying your dead. So, Abraham, you have a wonderful reputation among us. Pick a grave, any grave. We will, listen, we'll let you bury your dead in our grave. Does that make sense? Does that make sense of what's happening? Good. Uh, Going on. So, Abraham, what does he do? Rose and bowed. To the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke to them, saying, If it is your wish for me to bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and approach Ephron, the son of Zoar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, which is at the end of his field. For the price, for the price, for the full price, let him give it to me in the presence for your burial site. So Abraham is saying, If you really believe this, if you really mean it, I want a specific one. I want the one that belongs to, listen to how this is worded. I want the one that belongs to Ephron. I want the cave that is at Machpelah. And it's at the end of his field. Now, if you can get this picture, uh, imagine a country that begins to thin out toward its borders. And if you can imagine Machpelah, or at least this man's cave, being at the very edge of that border, it was almost as if it was the very tip of the country that would eventually uh, spread and belong to him as a whole. It was as if God is saying, here's the beginning, and the rest will be yours. Abraham is saying, talk to Ephron. He's among the sons of Heth. Ask him, if you would, if he would sell me this piece of land, and I will buy it at the full price. Now listen to what happens. Verse 10. Now Ephron was sitting among the sons of Heth. So he's saying, talk to Ephron. And Ephron's saying, here I am. I'm, I'm here. He was present among the people. And Ephron, the Hittite, answered Abraham in the hearing of the sons of Heth. Now listen to what it says. Even of all who went in at the gate of his city, saying. Now, the scriptures are saying the sons of Heth are there. Ephron is there. Everybody is there. Why is Moses going to such a great length to say the sons of Heth are there? Uh, Ephron is there. All of the people of the city, essentially, are present to hear this negotiation. Hold that question in your mind. Going on. Uh, 
Oh, he says, no, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and give you the cave that is in it. In the presence of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Now he's saying, Abraham, it's yours. Take it. I've heard what you've requested. Take the, take, now, take the cave. But he doesn't mean take it. He means you can borrow it. He's essentially giving Abraham a loan. I will let you use it. If he loans it to him, does it belong to Abraham? No. Verse 11, 12. And Abraham bowed before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land. They are all present, saying, If you will only please listen to me, I will give you the price of this field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead. Then Ephron said uh, to Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. Now here's what he says. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between me and you? So bury your dead. See what he says? Ephron is saying, Abraham. It's only worth 400 shekels of silver. What's that between me and you? What's he doing? He's naming the price. Everyone is saying, Abraham, you guys know. You guys have done this before. You broke it. It's okay. It's only worth $40. Oh, here, I'll give you the $40. No, don't. Well, if you insist, okay, I'll take it. This is what Ephron is doing. He's saying 400 shekels of silver. Now, this time silver was not coins. It was actually silver. So they would weigh it out in a shekel. That's a lot of silver. I don't know what the equivalent was. And we don't know if it was a good price or not. We just know that Abraham heard him loud and clear. Here's why. Verse uh, 12, uh, uh, 16. The Bible says, Abraham, listen to Ephron. Did you hear that? Abraham, I heard you loud and clear. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver, which he had named in the hearing of his son's half, 400 shekels of silver, commercial standard. So everyone is saying, it's only 400 shekels of silver. Abraham says, I got you. He gives him the silver. Now, notice a few things. Notice the respect that the Canaanites have for Abraham, but also that Abraham has for them. We don't see in this negotiation any kind of, uh, any kind of anger or any kind of hostility in their haggling. Rather, there is respect given Respect taken, respect taken, respect given. They are saying, Abraham, you are a prince among us. That says much about the way Abraham lived among the people of, of, of the Hittites. He lived in such a way that they would call him a prince, a, a prince of God even. And Abraham, in response, he bows down in reverence. He bows down in respect. He is the man of faith dwelling among pagans. And yet even the pagans respect him. Why? Because of the way that he lives in their presence. That says much about the way that we must live, right? We must learn how to live in and among the darkness and do so so that our light shines even in the darkness. It would appear that he's trying to, Ephron is trying to give this land to Abraham, but he's not. He's trying to haggle with him. But if Abraham were to take this man's offer, it would merely have been a loan. So Abraham, he's not going to take this loan. Instead, he wants to buy this land, not just for himself, but for future generations. Now, to ask the question again, why is, who wrote the book of Genesis? Moses. Who are the first hearers of the book of Genesis? 
They are former enslaved people of Egypt, the children of Israel, who, are, who have exited their slavery and are now, what are they doing? Most likely, what are they doing while they're reading the book of Genesis? They're most likely wandering in the desert. They're most likely sojourning in the desert. And I wonder if you could uh, put yourself in their place. If you're wandering, and if you're young in this place, my son does it every time, even if we're just going to the store. If you've ever asked the question, are we there yet? How much longer until we get there? And there is always the destination, right? Where are we going? And it was the question that the children of Israel always asked. Did you bring us out into the desert to starve us? In Egypt, we at least sat around pots of meat. We at least were fed well. Where are we going? And I'm sure Abraham probably heard more than once, are we there yet? Not Abraham, uh, Moses. And so Moses is, is writing this letter, and there is much that encourages them about what they are hearing in this transaction. Let me just say it quickly here it is this there is a transaction that is taking place in the in the presence of the sons of heth with ephron who owned the property and the scriptures moses even goes to the extent of saying all of the city was present it was so that abraham could make a legal transaction in the presence of all witnesses, that this land belongs to Abraham. It was so that Abraham could legally ensure that there would be no dispute over who this land belonged to. Ephron saw it, the sons of Heth saw it, all of the cities saw Abraham pay for this land. Where are we going, Moses? We're going to a land that has been promised and even purchased. By your father Abraham. Later this land will be hotly contested for. But legally it belonged to Abraham. And providentially God had given it to him. Abraham bows in respect. He buys the field. 400 it is. Abraham models how we should live in this world. How we should live holy, live different, strive to, to have peace with others and treat others in respectful ways. But in conclusion, I'd like you to see these last verses. Verse 17. 17 to 20. So Ephron's field. Now listen to what he says. Which is in Machpelah, which faced Mamre. You remember Mamre. The tree of Mamre, the trees of Mamre. The field and cave which was in it. And all the trees which were in the field that were within all the confines of its borders were deeded over. Now listen to what Moses goes, says to Abraham for his possession in the presence of his sons, the sons of Heth, before all who went into the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, facing Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded over to Abraham for a burial site for the sons, from the sons of Heth. Now, doesn't that seem a little like Moses is belaboring this point? What point? The point of land. He describes land. 
trees, a cave, a field, witnesses. It's almost repetitive. Why? Because Moses wants his hearers to understand the fact that all of that land was Moses's or Abraham's. And again, don't forget who this was written to. Men and women released from slavery, wandering in the desert. They were also pilgrims, aliens who were traveling to a specific place. What was that place? It was the place that God had promised Abraham. It was the place that Abraham had said, uh, God had said to Abraham, belongs to you. The place that God said that your descendants would return to after 400 years. God promised that they would return to that land, the land that God gave to Abraham. It's supposed to encourage the people. And I pray that it encourages you this morning. You are dearly beloved by God. You have been provided for by God. Abraham was promised nations, but he only saw Isaac. Abraham was promised land, but he only saw a cave. But there would come a day. There would come a day when this nation, the nation of Israel would be as numerous as the stars of the sky. And if you are a son of Christ, if you are a believer in Christ, then you are also a part of that great nation. And if you belong to Christ, then you are headed toward a land, not an earthly land, not a physical land. It is that eternal land, the land that Abraham was looking unto. Abraham bought a place to bury his dead. It was an act of faith. He would bury his descendants there. They would return to that land. It would be their land. Moses is writing to his people and saying, we are going to that land. This is how God chose to fulfill his plan of redemption. It was progressively. God could have done this all at once. But he progressively fulfilled his promises. Again, Abraham has been given the promise of a seed. And there must have been times when he was struggling to believe whether or not that seed would, would, ever, grow, would ever grow, would ever sprout. But he did see. By the grace of God, he did see that seed sprout. By the grace of God, that seed has now become a grand oak tree, immovable and unshakable. The Lord has done the same for you and I. It is true that Christ has come. But it is also true that all of the promises of Christ have not yet been fulfilled. For he is yet to return. We are still living here. We're still living in a sin-sick world. We are awaiting the new heaven. We are awaiting the new earth wherein righteousness dwells. God has given us a down payment. The Holy Spirit has a guarantee that his promises will come to pass. Abraham knows that this is not the end. He wants a place where he can hold an uncontested title deed. And he has given the down payment to the land that God has promised. And it's significant. It's significant that the first thing that he buys is a tomb. The first thing that he purchases is a grave. Why? Because Abraham now has a place and it is a permanent place. And it is a statement of faith as he looks forward to what God has promised him. The purchase of a tomb is more than a purchase of a tomb, therefore. It's a statement of faith. It is Abraham once again believing in what God has told him. In the previous chapter, he was willing to pay the price of his son. 
to show that he believed God in giving him a nation. And now he's willing to pay the price of 400 shekels to show that he believes that God will give him the land of Canaan. The one thing that he does own in all of the world is a grave. And we as pilgrims, we recognize that the meek will inherit the earth, but we live here now. Abraham, he has no problem dealing with Ephron. Notice that? He doesn't say, uh, Ephron, you know that this is all my land anyways. I don't got to give you nothing. He makes the payment. And the payment on the cave is really a payment on the entire land. Why? Eventually Isaac will be buried there. Rebecca will be buried there. Joseph will be buried there. Jacob will be buried there. When we get to the end of the book of Genesis, we find that Jacob has, has died. And Joseph charges his brothers, when I die, you take my bones out of Egypt. They're all living in Egypt. You take my bones out of Egypt. You take dad's bones out of Egypt. Where should we take them, Joseph? You take them to the grave. You take them to the tomb that was purchased by our father Abraham in Machpelah. Joseph prophesied that there would be an exodus one day, that we would leave this land. This land is not our home. We will leave this place and we will go to the land that Abraham has, has purchased for us. And in the exodus, imagine this, in, in the exodus where Pharaoh says, leave, leave this country in, in the hurry of leaving exodus. What's the one thing they don't forget? The bones of Joseph. Imagine they take the bones, they carry them out of Egypt and to the land of promise that God has given them. But it's just bones. What, what's, why would they just take bones? No, it's not just bones. It's, a, it's believing in the promise that God has promised a, an eternal land. The answer lies in resurrection. Why bones? Because they believed that the bones would not stay dead. That there would be a time when God raised those bones to life. That would not be their home. They were headed toward the place of promise. Just bones? No, my brothers and sisters. Carrying the bones is a statement of faith. And these men died in faith. Not seeing the promise that God had given them. But believing that God would fulfill that promise in due time. They. They will see. We will see the great promise that God has given to all the elect. And what is that promise? That the dead will be raised. That the dead will be raised. That we will be raised and we will enjoy the heavenly city wherein we will rejoice in our King, the Lamb of God. This is not a New Testament idea. Job believes that he will be raised to life, he says. Abraham believed that if God were to take his son, that he would raise him back to life. Hebrews 11 tells us that Joseph, by faith, believed in the resurrection. And what's happening? This is all a confession of Abraham's faith. He believes in life beyond the grave. He believes in the resurrection power of God. And I say to you, brothers and sisters, when it is your time to stare into the tomb, what will be your hope? Will your hope be in this world, in all of its fleeting promises? Or will your hope be in an empty grave? 
the grave of Christ because he is not there. He has been risen. And because Christ has been risen, you will be risen. And because Christ has been risen, Sarah will be risen. Because Christ has been risen, Abraham will be risen. Rebecca will be risen. Jacob will be risen. Joseph will be risen. You will be risen if you believe in Christ. Death is not the end. Therefore, where are your eyes this morning? Are you a pilgrim? Are you trusting in the promise of Christ's return? If so, then you are truly a child of Abraham. A child of the promise. Let's pray.